Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes. It is neither investment, legal, nor tax advice and does not represent the opinions of the employers of the host or guest. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Coming off of the Iowa caucuses and with almost a week before the New Hampshire primary, the United States is in full swing for one of the craziest election cycles in memory. With histrionics coming from both sides, it's hard to separate the signal from the noise. Enter David Wasserman. David is senior editor and elections analyst for the Cook Political Report with Amy Walter. Recognized as one of the nation's top election forecasters, David leads the development of key data visualizations and new product development. He manages CPR's coverage of the U.S. House of Representatives and redistricting developments. Founded in 1984, the Cook Political Report provides analyses of presidential, U.S. Senate, House, and gubernatorial races. New York Times has called the report a newsletter both parties regard as authoritative. Welcome aboard, Dave. Thanks for having me. Well, this is a lot of fun. We are at the throes of what's going to be a pretty contentious political season, and your expertise is going to be really helpful in helping our listeners get our arms around what's going on here. Something that's interesting to me, sort of the chattering classes start getting going, is understanding what polls mean and don't mean. It seems to me there's a lot of noise and not a lot of signal a lot of times, and people start putting a lot of importance around them. How do you think about the polling world and what's useful when you're sort of figuring out how to make sense of what's going on out there? It's a great and fascinating question. And I think we're in the middle of a polling power outage in several respects. First of all, response rates to your traditional telephone-based polls, both cell phones, which account for an overwhelming share of interviews and the few remaining landlines we have left, they've plunged to 1% or even under 1%. So we're relying on less than 1% of voters who are bored enough to talk to a pollster or not sophisticated enough to screen their calls to accurately model what the other 99% of the country thinks. And after a while, that just doesn't hold up because as we saw in 2016 and 2020, there's asymmetric partisan response rates. And Donald Trump has done very well among voters who are the most skeptical of institutions, which includes the institution of polling and Democrats were hyper engaged and responsive to polls in 2016 and 2020, and particularly in 2020, they were likely to be home during the pandemic. And so we saw a pretty big polling error, which was three or four points. It doesn't sound that big, but it ended up being quite substantial in the context of polling historically. And it makes us a little less confident in the polling that we see now. The other caution flag would be that voters really haven't tuned in to the 2024 election yet. And we're seeing big shares of the vote in a lot of early polling for third party candidates, including RFK to a lesser extent, Cornell West or Jill Stein or someone that the no labels movement would nominate. And that's really a parking place for dissatisfaction with Biden and Trump rather than a true reflection of support 
for those contenders in the race. So eventually that share of the vote will collapse once people realize it's a binary choice between candidates that they don't like. And we can't yet know how those voters will fall. So we're on the cusp of New Hampshire right now. And when this comes out, we'll probably know more about how that turned out. But as you look at the environment, what is the state of play at this point for the presidential candidates? And then as we go down the list here with Congress and then major state issues? Yeah, this is the most anticlimactic primary season in my career and perhaps in the last century of presidential elections. The Republican race and the Democratic race were pretty much over before they began. The punditocracy and cable news in trying to manufacture some drama here is pretending as if it makes a difference whether Trump won Iowa by 25 or 31 or 35 points. He ended up winning it by 30. And in reality, Nikki Haley does not have a pathway to the nomination, even if she comes close in New Hampshire or she wins New Hampshire, which I don't think she will. But she is doing very well among independent and even Democratic-leaning voters who are participating in Republican primaries because there's nothing going on on the Democratic side. And in New Hampshire, it's pretty easy to cross over and vote on the Republican side. But the rest of the country's primary electorate for Republicans looks much more like Iowa's than New Hampshire's. So we are looking at a matchup that is pretty well set unless one of the major candidates has a health event or changes their mind about running. And keep in mind, Joe Biden is asking voters currently to allow him to be president until he's 86 years old. Lyndon Johnson did not drop out of the 1968 race until March 31st of 1968. So I still think there is a 10 to 20% chance, not a high chance, but some chance that Biden changes his mind before the Democratic convention, which would unbind his delegates and allow for Democrats to pursue potentially a stronger nominee to defeat Trump. So if he were to drop out, then you have sort of the Gavin Newsoms of the world, et cetera. Who are the other people that could elevate to that role, do you think? Republicans aren't too afraid of Kamala Harris. She, for most of this administration, had lagged behind Joe Biden in popularity in polls. Now Joe Biden is maybe lagging her by a point, but it's about the same. Republicans aren't that afraid of Gavin Newsom or J.B. Pritzker because their argument would be pretty simple against them, that they want to turn the country into San Francisco or the south side of Chicago or impose the pension crises that we see in California and Illinois on the rest of the country. But the smart Republican operatives that I talk to are most fearful of a Democrat who would have experience governing a purple state. Someone like Gretchen Whitmer from Michigan or Josh Shapiro from Pennsylvania, although he hasn't served very long, or maybe someone like Mitch Landrew from Louisiana or Roy Cooper from North Carolina. It would be a free-for-all at the Democratic convention if this nomination were to open up. It's beyond the point at which candidates can realistically file for primary ballot access in most states. So it would be an inside baseball process and really a raucous convention in Chicago to determine what would happen. But there is a long time between now and August 
19th through 22nd, which is the Democratic Convention. As we move away from the presidential election and go down the ticket a little bit, what are you looking at as far as significant races, different situations that really merit some attention? Obviously, the House of Representatives is razor thin, as is the Senate. Things can go either way in many ways. Do you see anything around the horizon that merits some attention? Well, (laughs) all of it. But the curious fact is right now, Democrats hold a 51 to 49 seat majority in the Senate. They have, by percentage terms, a 49 to 51 deficit in the House. They're at 213 to 222 for Republicans. But Democrats actually have a much better chance at the House than the Senate in 2024. And there is a non-zero chance that the chambers flip in opposite directions. And the reason is the types of seats that are up for election this fall. In the Senate, Democrats are looking at the worst map I've ever seen for one party. They're defending pretty much all the vulnerable seats in the Senate, and they're going to lose one off the bat. That's West Virginia, where Joe Manchin is retiring. So the Senate starts out at 50-50. That means Democrats have to run the table on every one of the competitive races and hold the White House because a vice president breaks a tie in the Senate. That's extremely hard to do considering Democrats have three senators up for re-election in really red states. I mentioned Manchin retiring, but John Tester in Montana, Sherrod Brown in Ohio. And then you also have this fascinating race in Arizona where Kirsten Sinema defected from the Democratic Party, became an independent. She hasn't said whether she'll run again, but that's a really chaotic, hard to predict race. And then There are a bunch of other seats in the Senate that are at some lower degree of risk for Democrats, but still are going to be highly competitive, including the open seat in Michigan, Nevada, where Jackie Rosen is, Bob Casey in Pennsylvania, Tammy Baldwin in Wisconsin. And then there's really only one Republican seat that's worth watching, and that's Ted Cruz in Texas, which would still be a very heavy lift for Democrats. In the House, by contrast, where you have all 435 seats up for election, Democrats only need to flip five seats for the majority, and they could flip one seat on February 13th in a special election. That's George Santos's district on Long Island, where Democrats have a former congressman, a very familiar face named Tom Suozzi, who's a moderate, running against kind of a last-minute pick by Republicans. They nominated an Ethiopian Israeli immigrant who served in the IDF in the paratroopers brigade where she was a gunsmith and moved to America in 2005, became a Nassau County legislator and has been a registered Democrat until recently, but now affiliates with Republicans and Trump. I think Democrats could prevail in that special election and narrow Republicans margin. And then on top of that, you have 17 other Republican held seats that are districts that Joe Biden carried in 2020. The bulk of those are in California and New York, whereas you only have five Democrats up for re-election in districts that Trump carried in 2020. And there's also the possibility that Democrats could redraw New York's congressional map in time for this fall. And if they are able to re-gerrymander that map, that would put Hakeem Jeffries much closer to being the next speaker. So the net of that is with the 51-49 on both sides of the House and the Senate, it comes down to really a few races that could flip all sorts of situations there. 
Yeah, we're looking at just 24 districts out of 435 that we currently rate as toss-ups. So the House is really going to be decided by about 5% of American voters who live in those highly competitive districts. And they're mostly concentrated in states where Democrats underperformed in the midterms. So New York and California actually were really weak states for Democrats in the midterm elections because abortion was most potent as an issue in some of the Midwestern battlegrounds where there were fierce fights in state capitals over abortion laws. That rallied Democrats to the polls. But in blue states like New York and California, there were no threats to existing state laws on abortion in state capitals. And so Republicans were much better able to make those elections about immigration, crime, inflation, and the issues that played to their strengths. So as a result, now you've got Democrats on offense in places where they're hoping to rebound. From an issue standpoint, what are the big issues that are out there now in New York anyway, which is in my little silo? Immigration is definitely top of mind, at least in New York City. The economy is top of mind, even though we're getting data from above that tells us everything's getting better. Yet I think a lot of people feel or vibe that the economy isn't doing that well and that inflation is roaring, even if the federal data doesn't support that necessarily. What is top of mind with the voter nationally and then in these battleground states? I look at it in terms of layers of the electorate. Democrats are very concerned about abortion and the future of democracy. Republicans are very concerned about immigration and crime. But the truly persuadable voters out there are voters who are not tuned in to Fox News or CNN or MSNBC. They like to think about politics as little as possible, but they still vote. And there are a multitude of combinations of views on social and economic issues in that bucket. But I think the one through line is those voters are more likely to be basing their choice on a simplistic evaluation of was the economy better for me under Trump or was it better for me under Biden? And this is really the biggest warning sign for President Biden. Among independent voters in the most recent ABC Washington Post poll, 54% said they thought Trump did a better job handling the economy during his four years than Biden has done so far. And so you've got this cohort of voters that deeply dislikes Donald Trump personally. They believe he is a chaos agent and that he is going to be on many days an embarrassment as president, but they're nostalgic for the economy under Trump and they believe he generally did a good job managing it. It's kind of a more extreme version of the dissonance in the Clinton era when you had a number of voters who felt that Clinton acted immorally in the White House, but they also really liked his management of the economy. So that is the challenge that Democrats are up against. And, and you know, Democrats would say, well, voters were deeply pessimistic about the economy in the midterms, and yet we still picked up a Senate seat. We didn't do as badly as expected in the midterms. And that's true, except that there are only 112 million Americans who cast ballots in the midterms. There are going to be between 150 and 160 million Americans who show up in 2024. And that added layer of voters, I believe, is pretty down on Biden when it comes to the economy and his handling of foreign policy as well. Expand on the foreign policy question with the Ukraine and now Israel and the Gaza Strip, Taiwan even. 
What impact do those international situations have on the voter to the extent that they care? I'm taken by the showy support of Palestine that we see on the news nationally. And I'm wondering if that's a trend that I just was unaware of or maybe took for granted living in the middle of Manhattan. Yeah. Prior to October 7th, there was broad unanimity among Democrats on most policy matters. And yet the Israel-Hamas war has opened up a gaping wound among Democrats' younger coalition. There are stark divides between younger and older Democrats over where their sympathies lie in the Middle East. And there's broad dissatisfaction among younger progressives about the president's willingness to stand with Israel and not put conditions on aid. And that really threatens the president's ability to turn out a base of voters that was critical to his success in 2020. Joe Biden carried 18 to 29 year olds by 22 points in 2020. And most of that was anti-Trump rather than pro-Biden. But now Joe Biden's the incumbent. And it's harder to make the race about your opponent when you're the incumbent. And so do we see Joe Biden win the same level of support as he did in 2020 with that group? Do we see him garner the same turnout? I'm really skeptical. And Biden can't afford hardly any erosion from where he was in 2020, because keep in mind, even though he won 7 million more votes than Donald Trump and won the popular vote by 4.4%, his effective margin of victory in the Electoral College was 42,915 votes out of 159.6 million cast in the election. That was his cumulative margin in the three closest states that put him over the top in the Electoral College, Arizona, Georgia, and Wisconsin. For those three states, do you see particular warning signs for Biden in the data that we should focus on? Well, this race is going to come down to just six states, and those are Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. And a couple of months ago, I would have said that Michigan and Nevada were leaning a little bit towards Democrats because you know they had slightly larger margins of victory for Biden in 2020. Democrats did pretty well there in the midterms. And yet the demographic realities of those states are difficult for Joe Biden to confront. Biden has actually held up fairly well in terms of his support with older white voters. He's retaining his support among college graduates, at least white college graduates. But where we have seen a lot of erosion is with Hispanic voters and young voters, and arguably the group where we've seen the biggest fall off from 2020 is not a particularly large group, but it's Muslim voters who are a significant share of the vote in Michigan. They make up about two to 3% of the vote. And we've seen in the limited data we have so far since October 7th, pretty much an abandonment of Joe Biden among that group. That would be enough to make Michigan a tie in and of itself. And when you consider Nevada, it's a much younger, less college educated, and more Hispanic state than the other battlegrounds. So there's kind of this demographic cocktail that's very unfavorable for Joe Biden in that state, even though Democrats have consistently carried it since 2008. 
If Biden were to have a late dropout, which one of those candidates that you were talking about before might address those demographics positively? Whitmer in Michigan does have experience in balancing the politics of the Muslim community in her state and with the more pro-Israel community in her state. And she's experienced in kind of navigating those waters. She's also gone through threats and kidnapping attempts that most governors have not had to deal with. There are, I think, more concerns about Gavin Newsom because even though he's a talented communicator, he's also presided over a lot of very progressive legislation in Sacramento, signed bills into law that are unlikely to be popular policy in the middle of the country, particularly on energy issues, but it runs the cultural gamut. There's a lot there for Republicans potentially to attack, whereas Whitmer's strategy in 2018 was essentially to run on fixing the damn roads. Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota could be another contender in a Biden dropout scenario. Some of the issues with her staff that she had to address in 2020 would probably come up again. Is there anything timeline-wise with Trump's court cases that you think derails him from getting the nomination? No, not the nomination. At this point, I think the only threat to his renomination would be a health event. However, it is a valid question to ask what would a conviction on any of these counts do in the general election? You kind of need not only an election forecaster, but a legal procedure expert and a gerontologist to understand the 2024 election. And I don't pretend to be either of those latter two things. But most legal experts who we've spoken with believe that it's a less than 50-50 chance we're going to get a verdict in any of these cases before November 5th, that there are enough procedural tactics that Trump can use to delay the starts of trials and push a potential verdict in these cases past the election date. There's also the chance that we could end up with a mistrial in Florida, for example, because the jury pool comes from counties that are pretty politically mixed. There's a potential for a conviction in the D.C. case, but that's mostly because the jury pool is made up of a locality that voted for Biden 92 to 5. And what would Trump do in that instance? He would call it a nakedly partisan verdict. And when the polls that have tested the question of would your support change if Trump were a convicted felon heading into election day, well, it moves the margin of the race on average by two points. Now, two points isn't nothing, but can you imagine if we had asked this question 20 years ago and a major party candidate being convicted of a felony only moved the needle two points? We're in a pretty remarkable moment politically. Dave, we've had you for a nice long time here and you've got a deadline coming up. So I want to thank you for appearing. Have you got any interesting predictions? I don't want to put you on the spot for anything like that. Is there anything in particular that you think is going to happen that might be really surprising in the next year or so getting up to the election? There's going to be multiple surprising events in this race. And 
you know, I had a friend who wrote Hollywood movie scripts about politics, and I don't think you could come up with a script that is more salacious than the one that we're living through right now. That said, I think the biggest earthquake in this race would be if if there were a either health event or a decision on the part of either candidate to withdraw before the conventions. I think Biden would be more likely to have a change of heart than Trump if Biden were to look at the polls and feel as if maybe I'm not the best candidate to defeat Trump in this election, even if I was the only Democrat capable of defeating him in 2020, which I think he really believes and may be true given how far the left much of the field was. But the candidate that is kind of out of nowhere that people keep mentioning to me in that scenario is Mark Cuban. And that would be interesting if he were to run. Also, Nikki Haley isn't really gaining traction nationally as a contender for the Republican nomination. She's kind of plateaued. But if she were running as an independent candidate, and I think it is too late for that at this point, but if she were running as an independent, I think it would be a genuinely competitive three-way race. So we'll see. But we're going to be living through an unprecedented set of circumstances politically these next 10 months. Dave, thanks so much for being on. I have a feeling I will be checking back with you after the elections and maybe we'll do a postmortem. Great. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Fraser Rice is an employee of Next Capital Management, LLC. This podcast is not investment, legal, or tax advice, nor does it reflect the opinions of Next Capital Management. Any opinions represented in the show are Fraser's individually and not an endorsement of the guests.